Now, I realize this is SEC Athletic Conference territory, but I'm going to talk about the Big Ten and Ohio State football. I'm sorry. I like Ohio State football, although I, I will grant you, and I know some of you don't. Um, I went to an Ohio State football game, and the first game I went to, I actually left offended. Uh, there became a moment where a hush starts coming over the crowd, and I was asking the guy, I said, what's going on? They said, they're going to sing the alma mater. I go, what? They're going to sing the alma mater. I mean, so they stand up and sing, and it's like the most reverential crowd I've ever been around. I mean, there are people with, you know, wiping tears, and they're singing the alma mater. And I was going, what's wrong with these idolaters? But, uh, but it is kind of fun to go to the game, 104,000 people at gym, and, 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 and there, there's rituals that everybody goes through. And there's an anxious longing that happens, and that's the point of this illustration, for the kickoff. Everybody's really jazzed about the kickoff. They want to get there. So much so, like three and a half or four hours before kickoff, they're already there, parked and tailgating, and 15,000 of them, or upwards toward 15, sometimes it's more, they'll, they'll jam into the old basketball arena, St. John's Arena across Lane Avenue from famed Ohio Stadium, and, and they wait for the moment. And the moment is when the football team walks across, dressed in their suits, and somebody says something. It's very brief. But then what they're really waiting for is for the band to get there. And their band's a pretty good band. And, um, and, and there's a particular cadence that their band marches to that the percussion section's very good to beat out. And so if you listen as you're seated there, so that, that they're all there, and they get anxious about the game, and they're all jazzed. In fact, I'm going to show I'm going to show you 108 seconds of, or no, I'm going to show you 68 seconds of it. But um, what happens is the band starts out from its quarters and um, they're beating the percussion, marching over in precision across the street. But you can hear the band coming and at first it's real faint, then it gets closer. And then as they enter St. John's Arena, they start jamming up in the tunnel to come out, and then the crowd starts going on in a frenzy. But here's 68 seconds of it, and think about this crazy, anxious longing for a football game. But here it is. Here's 68 seconds. You can hear it. You've heard it. It's gotten louder. Now it's here. about four hours before kickoff. You heard that lady. She was filled with some kind of spirit behind me as I was filming that. You know, I don't know what that was. I mean, anxious, long. They can't wait for the game to start. And then they're sitting in their seats. And they're, they're all fired up. And then they begin to hear the band. That band comes in that tunnel. And they just, the, the, the atmosphere in there is fascinating to watch. For a football game. And you forget the result. Now, What kind of anxious longings do we harbor 
in our heart. I mean, really looking forward to it. What is it? A follower of Jesus Christ has a particular kind of anxious longing, and not unlike that frenzied crowd, it actually begins to rise in influence and takes hold of us and shapes how we live. But it's not only those who know Jesus Christ as Savior. The author to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, argues that we do this in sync with creation. That's all waiting on those seats, not for the opening kickoff, but for the revelation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that anxious longing gets even more anxious and more frenzied as we get closer to the time when Jesus Christ shall be revealed. But a way to understand this moment and a way to understand our world is embedded in this next paragraph in this great book. Come with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Forgive me for being a fan. I know the Kentucky people are all mad now, you know. UK plays good basketball some years. I like it. No, I know we we're hurting this. This wasn't a good winner for us, you know. This is getting worse. I'm sorry. I was trying to heal it up a little bit. Romans 8, 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in, pain, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me do two things this morning as you hear the word of the Lord. First, let me describe for you the theme in three different ways in that paragraph I just read to you. And then drive home the force of what Paul is communicating by bringing our hearts out to ask, what difference does this make? How is that to shape our living? Number one, gospel hope keeps followers of Jesus looking ahead with joy. I love Lady Wisdom said of her in Proverbs 31, 25, she smiles at the future. I don't know about you, but I am running increasingly into less and less people who are smiling at the future. Oh, I know a lot of people who are scour, scowling at the future, who are harboring foreboding fears and thoughts about the future. But here's Lady Wisdom who looks into the future with resolute trust in God and skillful living, and she smiles. That's embedded in her understanding of our Lord and her understanding, personified as wisdom is in that lady, 
of the world and the way it works. Three assertions to the theme. Assertion number one, life in our broken world is characterized by frustrating futility. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 21. The curse brought the sweat of the brow. For Adam and since Adam, the world is working against our attempts to thrive. The preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes calls this all meaningless and vanity of vanities because that's how the world works. All of creation is broken and it is reeling from the break. Two iconic descriptions of creation are here. You heard me read that creation is, number one, subjected to futility. Eric, what's wrong with the world? Why does it work the way it does? It has been subjected to futility in the curse. Secondly, it's described as being in bondage. Eric, what is it in slavery to? In slavery to corruption. Those two frame an answer, a biblical answer to the question, well, how is it going in the world? Well, it's going something like this. The world is subjected to futility and the world is in bondage to corruption. Other than that, it's going pretty well. We find ourselves situated in a world that is futile and corrupt. That's how it works. And we butt up against how it works all the time. Here's my buddy, wife just super threatened, just had a liver transplant. And um, that is a time that he drives home and the garage door opener doesn't work and he can't get in the garage simultaneous to the same day that the HVAC unit went out. I mean, this, this is just how life works, you know? Like, none of us are surprised by that. You know, that, that seems kind of par for the broken world course. That's how it goes. The curse makes us feel as if there are forces working against our attempts to be fruitful. The second assertion here is the fruitlessness of our impotent world lead to sustained groanings. There's a sense in which there's an auditory part of the text this morning. If you listen well, you can hear it. It's kind of inaudible. It's not words. It's groanings. In fact, there's a trio here offering a special from Romans chapter 8. A trio of groanings. Verse 22, all of creation is groaning. Verse 23, we ourselves join in on the groaning. Now, next week's message, and this is what's glorious, because in the midst of our groanings, God is groaning with us and for us. The Spirit is making intercession with groanings too deep for words. You say, Eric, how do you get on? Well, there's more about that next week. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Ray Steadman was a pastor in a former generation in Silicon Valley as it was taking off right next to Stanford. He wrote this about groaning. It's great because it's accurate. Our lives consist of groans. By the way, did you walk in here groaning this morning? Maybe nobody knows the groanings you have and are experiencing today. They're endemic in a broken world. Don't you dare sit here and say, I'm the only one here this morning that's groaning. Our lives consist of groans. We groan because of the ravages that sin make in our lives and the lives of those we love. Also, we groan because we see possibilities that are not being captured and employed. And then we groan because we see gifted people who are wasting their lives. And we would love to see something else happening. It is recorded that as he drew near the tomb of Lazarus, 
Jesus groaned in his spirit because he was so burdened by the ravages that sin had made in a believing family. He groaned, even though he knew he would soon raise Lazarus from the dead. So we groan in our spirits. We groan in disappointment, in bereavement, in sorrow. We groan physically in our pain and our limitations. Life consists in a great deal of groaning, as if that was a novel insight by Ray Stedman. Isn't that how life works? Ever work on a project for a long time that nothing came to fruition from? You said to yourself, that was fruitless. It's an awful lot of life. It's like when I first started into computing, and I'm only a half a step further now. Uh, uh, aptly, I am like a Fred Flintstone. But um, I used to work on these documents, and I'd work, all, I'd work hours. And, I would, and somehow I'd get involved in some silly keystroke, and I would lose the document. And it's like, oh, no, I can go back and recover it. But somehow, my silly keystrokes were so good, silly keystrokes, that it was permanently gone. Irrecoverable error. You know, you get that message and you just want to cry. And you see, what? I, I poured all of myself into that for all of these hours. What do I have to show for it? It's gone. It's gone. That's kind of how life works. It can seem fruitless. We groan. Creation groans. Why? Well, it's legit groanable to face this kind of stuff, is it not? No one's like questioning, well, why do you, why do you, why do you groan? No, we, we, we get why we groan. Isn't that true? Now, in verse 22, the archetypical term for a woman in the travail of labor in giving birth is used. Now, dear Andy, petite Andy, my wife, married a brute. And so uh, our brute kids were larger. Ben, our son, weighed in about 9'3". Now, Andy doesn't do pain meds. We had three vaginal births. And I came to understand the strength of my wife, which is extraordinary, as I was next to her trying to help her. And I remember, you know, life is completely different than it was when our kids were born. But, um, you know, y'all... I almost became an OBGYN in all the preparation that was required for a husband to go in, you know, for the delivery back in that time. So I had to learn all about labor. And they introduced me to this concept of transition is, is a sequence in labor that you have to get through before you can start pushing. Now, many of you have been there and you know this and you're saying, what in the world is a man doing up there talking about that? I'd heard of transition. Then I saw transition and experienced it, but it's, it's not very pleasant. By the way, I've seen a lot of pictures, newborn baby pictures, you know, the, the mom smiling, holding the baby. They look so sweet. I've never seen anybody show me a picture. Hey, here's my wife in transition. Here's what it was really like, you know. I remember the, the first night when we were getting admitted, we walked into labor and delivery, and at that point there was kind of like some bullpens you were in before you, you got into your birthing room all by yourself, you know. So we walk into the bullpen right in time. The door opens, and one lady's going, ah! And I said, oh, that's not a good beginning. I wish my wife hadn't heard that, you know. But how do you even live through those things? Well, God has made our bodies in marvelous ways. But one of the ways you live through it is you know it's not going to last forever. There's an end to it. And it ends well. 
One key to getting through this is to know that it won't end. No one labors forever, nor this broken world, nor the people of God waiting on the coming of our Lord. Uh, the third assertion is this. But with all of creation, there is a hopeful longing that grips God's people. Did you note we are saved in hope? Did you see that in verse 20? Even at the subjection of all of creation to the curse. And don't you look forward to me wherever the curse is found, as far as the curse is found, it is resolved. But even when the curse is levied, Genesis 3.15, when the curse oracle is read to Eve, Eve, one of your sons down along the way will experience a conflict with the serpent. And that serpent will bruise his heel, but your son will crush his head. We pondered over that for centuries and then looked back after the cross and said, oh, I get it now. Wow. Eve's son has crushed his head and brought a victory, though it cost his life. So even in the curse oracle, there's the embeddedness of hope. And now we come to another trio in this text. Not a trio of groaning, but a trio of anxiously waiting. That verb is used three times. Once in verse 19, once in verse 23, and once in verse 25. An anxious longing. Um, creation is given a personality here. It's as if, and one translation has it, that all of creation is standing up on its tippy toes in anxious awaiting for the coming of our Lord and the release from the curse. How much, how much anxious longing do we really harbor in our hearts? Looking ahead with joy? Is that a good description of us or is that foreign to us? Do we have or do we have not an anxious longing for redemption? That's what's here. So then the question is, how does this paragraph matter? Are we being shaped by our promised future or not? Okay, it's a great description, Eric, of the present situation in a broken world. Paul gives it. You rehearse it. What is this passage saying to us? What difference does it make? This paragraph calls us to three substantial responses. Number one is a hopeful response. Life is wonderful, but hope for the believer is not yet realized. Look at verse 24 and 25. It's fascinating logic in these two verses. In this hope we were saved. Hope is a part of our salvation, but it's the part that's not realized yet. It's in the future. We're saved into the future. We're living now in the midst of an unrealized hope that's coming. We quit hoping for what we already realized. We haven't realized it yet. What's that line? The best is yet to come. That's our line. Eric, is this all there is to believing in Jesus stuff? No, no, no. There's so much more. It's not any less than what we experience now in fellowship with Christ, walking with him in our broken world, his word being a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But there's so much more in our hope. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, one that sure and steadfast enters into the very presence of God. Are we a hopeful lot at Calvary? 
Secondly, fearless. Fearless. Believers in Jesus do not fear the future. Back to Lady Wisdom, she smiles at the future. It seems to me that a growing characteristic of our age is one of fear. We now all have ring doorbells. We now have video surveillance of everything. And many have guns. Even these tragic stories in the last month of wrong addresses, wrong house, uh, impulsive shooting, and people being killed. People are afraid. There's tumult. There's travail. There's chaos. I mean, get in a subway in New York City and have a raving maniac harass everyone in the cart, try to restrain the person, and now what are you going to face legally? I mean, it's a... Nothing would surprise us in a news cycle story in the coming week. People are afraid. Take climate change fears. Now, by the way, could it be that the climate change community is onto something? Now, listen clear through. In saying that, it seems that the world is revolting against itself. Uh, the seas are rising. The temperatures are rising. Well, you know, in 100 years, one degree. How many hundred years sets have we done that? You know, and, uh, but could the whole climate discussion and fossil fuels, fascinating exchange this week between uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and a lady from the Heritage Foundation regarding an undersecretary in the Energy Department for President Obama, who was a 23-year professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who said in his book that there is insubstantial evidence that humans are having an effect upon climate. But what if the whole climate thing was a ruse by Satan to get people to think about everything else other than, let me tell you what's going on, the world is shaking in travail because we are getting closer and closer to our consummation. They're on their tippy toes as a creation, waiting on our Lord to be revealed. What if that was what was going on? And so in the midst of all these stories, and there are tornadoes, there are weather cycles that are fascinating. The seas are rising. What if all this was the last throes of transition and labor waiting for the birth of Jesus to come? And what if we're missing the whole point? And so our response is to become afraid. Warren Wiersbe was uh, fond of saying, and we, we don't even use 35 millimeter film and develop anything anymore with digital photography, but you know, he, he said that fear is the dark room where Satan takes us to develop our negatives. And fear does really tragic things to us. Who ought be afraid? Who ought not be afraid, even as the whole world travails? You see, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can lay back in the hammock, put your feet on the pillow at the other end, and just watch it unfold. Because you know who is ruling all of history. And these tremors, and the world shaking, and there are some world-shaking, tragic things going on. Yes, they are a preamble to the consummation 
and the coming of our Lord, when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let us not be intimidated by a rebellious world. I love the spirit of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the nations imagine a vain thing? You look at these raging nations imagining these things against the rule of God over all the earth. And the earth's response is to be fearful. Heaven's response is to say they are ridiculous. And nobody is wringing their hands in heaven. He who sits in the heaven laughs at our folly. And then, of course, that psalm ends. Pay homage to the sun. Kiss the sun. Is that who we are? Sitting in the hammock, kissing the sun, relaxed in his sovereign rule over all the earth, notwithstanding the chaos that is going on. Fear not. That's the method of operation of the anxious, longer, waiting to be redeemed. Are you numbered among the anxious, longers? Are you longingly looking forward to the coming of our Lord? Finally, it's patient. Are we patient? Jesus is coming. And the big reveal will bring healing and restoration to all things. Three times this notion of anxious longing shows up. 19, 21, and 23. Patience is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's what God is forging in us. Do we trust God enough with his world to run it like he will until he comes? Or are we convinced that it's gotten off track and somehow his sovereignty is checked out for a few months, a few years? How good are we at anxious longing? All of creation is good at it. They appear hyped up, ready. They hear the cadence of the drumbeat. How about us? Don't forget that we are waiting to be redeemed. Our bodies will be redeemed. The earth will be made new. We're going back to Eden. That's where we're headed. The consummation of the ages will bring the healing of the nations, the restoration of our bodies, which need healing, and the release from the curse. I love that sweet line from Revelation 22. The leaves on the trees are for the healing of the nations. Yesterday, Andy and I experienced the glory of one of our grandson's birthdays and a party. He was one year old. I'm fascinated by one-year-old birthday parties. The one-year-old has no idea what's going on. And everybody else enjoys the party. You know, that was, that was us yesterday. The party was to get underway at 4.30. I was text a picture at 1126. Our five-year-old grandson was sitting out on a rock on the front of the, front of the party. He, he rode his bike to the end of the driveway, put his bike down. He sat on the rock. His dad came out and said, Jack, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to greet him when they get here for the party. It's 1126. He was five hours early. He said, oh, that's a little kid. You know what? That's creation waiting on the Lord to come. And all of this chaos is explained by a world shaking in transition. The birth pangs are here. We're waiting to be delivered. And is there anything that was in Jack's heart? Oh, you say he's a little boy. Yeah, he is. You're right. 
And then he welcomed everybody as soon as they, I, I was there when they were, well, he, was, he was out there welcoming. He'd bring them, he'd make the announcement, hey, this person's here. Then he'd go out and bring them in the house. Hey, that person's here. And, and, and dutifully, one person walked in without a gift and he, he escorted him in the house. He goes, hey, where's your gift? You should have your gift. They said, oh, we forgot it in the car. Oh, thanks, Jack, for telling you. He, he took him back out and brought, brought him in. Or see, that's a cute little boy. According to Romans 8, it's to be the fiber of our heart. Is that in your heart? Is that in mine? I want you to know that this anxious longing is going to give way to a vindication like no other we've ever experienced. Someday, we'll sing joy to the world like we mean it. And realize those lyrics like we never did before. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Use it to shape your people here. Help us to get rid of fear, to cultivate patience, and to have joyful obedience and a settled peace be a part of who we are as your people, notwithstanding situated in this crazy world, waiting for Jesus to come. Oh, Lord, thank you for Jesus, our hope, in whose name I pray. Let's stand. Let's sing.